Today on this edition of the Forest City Church Podcast, Lauren Scott and Aria Childers have part three of the series titled Subversive. Forest City Church, how's it going this morning? So oh, good to see that. you. I'm Aria. And I'm Lauren. I'm Aria. And I'm Lauren. All right. So there have been a number of times in this last year or so since we've been, uh, since we've had Lauren around and on staff, where uh, so I'll be out in the mall and, and Lauren will have led worship so beautifully, uh, as you always do on a Sunday morning. And someone will come up to me and be like, hey, you have a beautiful voice. Thank you so much for leading worship um, today. And then I had to awkwardly, um, very awkwardly explain that you would not want me singing on this stage just ever. Just, I mean, we just can audition ever. you if you no, want. No, please, let's not. But honestly, likewise, it happens all the time. I'm walking around the mall, and someone will stop me and say, oh, are you Aria? Because I just loved the message today. And I'm like, look, I wish I could pull off the blonde mohawk and had a really cute toddler named Leland. He hasn't but slept she- like all, at all this last weekend, so you can, you can hang out with him if you'd like. Yeah, maybe hard pass on that. Okay, all right, well. Not ready. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you got the wrong girl if you think I'm Aria. Um, I am, I am, it's a compliment. Thank you, and likewise, likewise. We poked fun at it over the last year or so about being long-lost sisters. It's been a joke, and don't get me wrong, like she said, like, it is an honor and a privilege to be mistaken as the Lauren Ashley Scott. Not the full name. And we've laughed about the full name, and we've laughed about it. Um, But maybe it's just the inner middle child, you know, welling up inside of me. But isn't there something about the feeling that we all have when you don't feel seen, no matter who we are, everybody in this room, we have this desire to be seen, to be known, and to be valued for who we so distinctly are. But unfortunately, there are so many instances in just our day-to-day lives where we miss seeing each other for who we were created to be. We've been in this series called Subversive, and we're talking about the power and the disruptiveness of the gospel when it comes to reconciliation, but specifically racial reconciliation. And as a community, I think we're all beginning to realize that there's stuff that gets in the way of us seeing each other the way that Jesus sees us. There's prejudices, there's biases, there's stereotypes, and there's all these preconceived notions about who we are, and it gets in the way of us seeing each other the way that he does. There's something going on in us that allows us to lump people together who don't look like us, we don't understand, who don't come from where we come from. There's fear, there's implicit bias, there's all these things, and they prevent us from honoring the image of God that we all bear. There are super present hindrances and honestly downright sin that exist in every single one of us. No one is exempt from this, and all of our hearts need work and need help from the Holy Spirit that we would actually be able to step into the work that we're called to, that we would actually be a reconciled church. And friends, we have to start to be able to identify and address the very specific things that are hindering us from being reconciled to one another. We want to humbly accept the invitation to be more like Jesus each and every day. You know, two weeks ago, Chad talked about the fact that there is a power from God, a level of glory that is withheld from us if we are unwilling to be reconciled to one another. He talked about us being a church of peacemakers, not just peacekeepers. And last week, Eric shared about how ethnic unity is a gospel principle, and that call is for all of us to be ambassadors of reconciliation. We all have a role to play with all things being restored back to Jesus. And if you missed either of those messages, you can always go back to our website or you can listen to them on Spotify. 
Y'all, our hope is that as a community, we begin to, as we continue to begin to recognize, as we look at the scriptures, that we realize that the Jesus that we love, the Jesus that we put our hope and our trust in, he deeply desires for us to be a racially reconciled church. And that's our hope too. Laura and I have just been talking so much this week about just how grateful uh, and just how proud we are to be a part of a church, this church, Forest City Church, that is continuing to lean into these conversations. Like, that is all of us. Like, that is you guys. We love this church. We love this community. We love each other. And we want to see Forest City be one, be reconciled to one another, and honestly just be an example in this city, in this community, about the transformational power of the gospel. So true, so good. And we know that it's probably safe to say for most of us in this room, myself included, this series has been so convicting. It's exposed us, it's showing us places in our hearts, in our minds, where we're actually not like Jesus when it comes to loving our neighbor. And, you know, one of my favorite things about the Lord is that he leads us so well and in such kindness. And whenever he calls us higher, whenever he convicts us, it's always from a place of love. Like Hebrews 12 actually says that he corrects those that he loves. And that his correction, when he brings a word of correction, it's actually for our betterment and because he loves us. And Hebrews 12 is actually the text that Ari and I want to dive into today. It's a specific encouragement to believers who feel discouraged in their faith. And the exhortation here is that they would turn from everything getting in the way and set their eyes on Jesus. So we're going to dive right into the text. How does that sound? Hebrews 12 verse 1, it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, stripping off every unnecessary weight, and the sin which so easily and cleverly entangles us. Let us run with endurance and active persistence the race that is set before us. Here's my favorite part. Focusing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, disregarding the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then it comes the instruction, just consider and meditate on him, who endured from sinners such bitter hostility against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And verse 14 continues to say, continually pursue peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Friends, there's so much to unpack in Hebrews 12. I wish we could do the whole thing, but I don't think Parker wants us here for five hours. <laughs> But what we really want to focus on are these two ideas, specifically one, this idea of stripping off every unnecessary weight and the sin that so easily and cleverly entangles, as the Amplified Translation says. And this is specifically in regards to the church as we approach this idea of racial reconciliation. It's so crucial that we can pinpoint what is the unnecessary weight and what is the sin that's entangling us, that's getting us, that's getting in the way of us pursuing reconciliation. And the second thing we really want to harp on is what it means to, in turn, look to Jesus, to look away from those things and to focus on him. So before we really get into it, I think we need to pray. I just want to ask the Lord um, to do what he loves to do in this space. So would you close your eyes and bow your heads with me this morning? Father, we love you. We're so grateful to be yours. We're so grateful to be a part of this church, of this house, Forest City. And Lord, we just ask for everyone in this room that we would have open hearts, open minds, 
and open spirits that would receive whatever you want to say, whatever you want to do, however you want to speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, so if we've talked for more than a few minutes, it's likely you'll hear me talk about my toddler son, uh, Leland, who just turned two. And if you would have told me that on February 4th, 2020, that when I was in this hospital bed holding this brand new baby boy, that this is what the first two years of his life would look like, I'm not sure if I would have believed you. Over the first several weeks, the joy and the excitement that comes with bringing home your newborn baby, your firstborn child, soon turned to panic as I watched our world get flipped upside down and political and racial tensions boil over in the following weeks and months. It just felt like one thing after another. My son Leland was just six weeks old when COVID stopped America in our tracks. He was also just six weeks old when Brianna Taylor was killed while sleeping in her own home. A month after that, the February murder of Ahmaud Arbery grabbed national attention while he was killed, assaulted and killed while jogging um, down in the street. And just weeks after that, America watched George Floyd be suffocated and murdered on the streets of Minneapolis. And on and on and name after name over the summer of 2020. And as a brand new parent to this baby boy, this child that I'm just expected with no experience to raise up in this world and as a biracial woman, there was no way that I could just look at the news or even look at Facebook and be indifferent to what was going on around me. It felt like we lived in a pressure cooker as the ugliest parts of our humanity were exposed in our neighborhoods, on the news, in Facebook and Twitter, in texts and email exchanges in the wake of these events. I remember a night at the end of May where I put my not even four month old baby to bed thinking what kind of world did I just bring him into? But yet so many of us, including people close to me, could just go about their lives indifferent and unaffected with what was going on. I recently watched a PBS documentary called The Brain with David Engelman, an American neuroscientist. And in one particular segment, Dr. Engelman explores the relationship between empathy and in-group versus out-group. He and his team put 130 participants in a scanner and showed them then videos of a needle, uh, a syringe needle stabbing a hand. They then asked the question, how do these participants react when watching another person in pain? Then after that, the scientists added a single label onto the hand getting stabbed, a religious label including Jewish and Christian, Muslim, Hindu, atheist, and Scientologist. Would participants care as much watching a member of an outgroup being stabbed? And the results were shocking, but maybe not necessarily surprising. Y'all, just by adding a single label onto a hand, when a participant watched a member of their in-group getting stabbed, there was a large neural response, a reaction in the pain activ activation center of their brain. Participants who identified as Muslim had a greater pain response to the, a, a hand labeled Muslim getting stabbed with a needle. Subjects who identified as Christian had a greater reaction to hands labeled Christian getting stabbed. Atheists had a greater, greater response watching atheists and so on and so forth. But when they watched a member of their outgroup getting stabbed, the trend was clear. The response was a flat line, little to no response. Dr. Engelman says a single word label is enough to change our brain's basic pre-conscious response to another person in pain. Y'all, and that was just one single word. 
So what's our reaction to people who don't look like us, who don't vote like us, who don't believe like us, listen to the same music or eat the same food as us, who don't live like us? All of these differences stack up and create this barrier of in-group versus out-group. Are you on my team or are you not on my team? I could look at the news in 2020 and respond to the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd because I could see my own brother. I could see my own mom. I could see my grandma and my aunties and my uncles and my cousins and friends and other people whom I love so much. But in the same year, anti-Asian hate crimes increased in this country more than 73% in 2020, according to a February, or I'm sorry, an October 21, um, 2021 FBI data release. You know, men and women in the Asian community were spat on in grocery stores, told to, quote, go back to their country, accused of spreading COVID-19 and even murdered. And I lament I right now, I repent that I did not respond in the same anger and heartbreak as I did to my self-identified in-group. Y'all, this weight of indifference that we hold towards people who don't or or aren't like us or, quote, issues that don't involve us is keeping us from experiencing the fullness of the gospel. It's keeping us from living out the Ephesians 2, being reconciled to God and to one another like Eric talked about last week and like Hebrews 12 that we're looking at today. The blood of Jesus, the crucifixion reconciles us to God and to one another. And as followers of Jesus, if the Holy Spirit dwells in us, y'all, there is no room for this us versus them mentality or disposition. There is no room for us to, to entertain prejudice and stereotypes and hostility and divisiveness in Jesus. It is no longer us versus them. It is just us, period. To continually pursue peace. It is just us, y'all. And to continually pursue peace with everyone means that we are making a choice. We are making an active choice to move from the sidelines, to move from comfort, because, y'all, reconciliation does not exist without action. There's something that's so powerful about that, Aria, about what you just said, that in Jesus, it really is no longer us and them. It's just us. But... So many of us are holding so tightly to the labels that we believe define us, that keep us from actually being one, because we believe that they are the truest definition of who we really are. It's actually an issue of misplaced identity. And I believe that that is another weight that we have to strip away at, misplaced identity. I want to try to paint this picture for us. You guys, I was obsessed with high school. Like, obsessed. Some of you are probably silent because you think I'm still in high school. Um, I'm actually 28. This year will be my 10th year reunion, whatever. We love it. We love it. Rah, rah, rah. Um, But seriously, when I was in college, if you knew me, you knew about Grady High School. Everybody say Grady High School. Grady High School. Everybody say Grady Great Nights. Grady Great Nights. That was us. We were the Grady Great Nights. And clearly I'm still obsessed because I really just got to kick out of here. We and had such it. different high school experiences. Yeah, you hated it. I hated it. I'm so sorry. It's okay. I'm okay. Those were my glory days, sis. Oh, um, I Just kidding, these are my glory days, amen? (laughs) Amen. But seriously, I was obsessed, and if you, I mean, anybody who knew me could tell you, Lauren Scott went to the high school where they filmed Remember the Titans. Yes, it's a true story. My freshman year, I walked through the halls, got the whole tour, and they told me Gary Bertier, rest in peace, was buried under the bleachers, and I thought about it and then did the math in my head and said, that doesn't really add up. 
Um, everybody knew that I was the debate state champion. Everybody knew about our bomb fashion program. Like, everybody in college knew everything about Lauren in high school, now okay? Now you mention it, I do know a lot about your high school experience. You do, because I still talk about it all the time, 10 years later, bless the Lord. But seriously, like, there was something about that that I, it just, it made me who I was. That four years was a big part of who I was. But here's the thing. In college, at a point, when I would tell those stories to everybody, they just didn't hold the same weight anymore. Why? Because when I'm in Kansas City at the International House of Prayer University, I'm just Lauren Scott. Like, I'm not Lauren the Grady grad. I don't have the cap and gown. I don't have the Letterman jacket on anymore. It didn't hold the same weight because at the end of the day, that in essence is not the truest definition of who I am. And maybe for you, it wasn't high school. For Aria, we know it wasn't. But I just, I wonder what else have we found our identity in? Is it a sports team? And I know we say that and people shrug it off, y'all. I literally know somebody who their team lost a championship game and they literally ended up in the hospital because of their response. Like they got hurt in their own house. Is it success in your workplace or your career? For you, is that like the pinnacle? Is it this defines me, this in essence assigns me value and worth? Is it your role in a relationship? Is it your political party? Like what outside of Jesus, if we're honest, actually do we think tells us who we are? And if we lose it, we feel like everything's at stake. It's not inherently bad to have these things that are a part of us and that we identify with, but when they become our soul identity and we conflate the two, that's where it becomes a problem. In Ephesians 2, Paul speaks to this when he reminds us of where our true identities lie. He says, you were living without Christ back then. And the Jewish people who belonged to God actually had nothing to do with you. The promises he gave to them were not for you. You had nothing in this world to hope for. You were without God, but now you belong to Christ Jesus. At one time you were far from God. Now you have been brought close to him. Christ did this for you when he gave his blood on the cross. And we have peace because of Christ. He has made the Jews and those who are not Jews one people. He broke down the wall that divided them. He stopped the fighting between them by his death on the cross. He put an end to the law. Then he made of the two people one new kind of people like himself. In this way, he made peace. He brought both groups together to God. Christ finished the fighting between them by his death on the cross. Friends, we are first and foremost children of God. We belong to him, to nothing, and no one else. He defines us. He calls us by name. He alone assigns us worth and value and significance. And I think that if we actually found our soul identity in him, embracing this idea of reconciliation would actually be a no-brainer. If we believe that we served a God who championed and modeled and prioritized racial equity and unity, then we ourselves would also model and champion and prioritize racial equity and unity, but we don't. And why don't we? I think it's because there are labels that we've placed on ourselves that have actually excused us from doing this work or that we believe have excused us from doing this work. What do I mean by that? Do we identify with a political party that has no interest in healing the racial divide? Did we grow up in a family that was prejudiced? 
that was ignorant, that was not interested in educating themselves beyond what they knew or grew up with. And our family ties so strong. Does our last name mean so much to us that we're not willing to have the uncomfortable dinner conversation? That we're not willing for awkwardness to enter the relationship. What is so, what is so important to us that we're unwilling to let go of it? Why are we not willing to invite in a new way of thinking to stand up for what is right? Where do our identities really lie? I think that we have an invitation corporately right now as a community from the Holy Spirit to reevaluate. Like, are we willing to throw aside every weight that's hindering us? Everything that's getting in the way. And are we willing to do the hard and holy work of being reconciled? Because whatever it is, whatever label that we think that we treasure above being children of God, my friend Kelsey says this, and I love it. She says, that thing will fail you, fool you, and forget you. Your political party will fail you, fool you, and forget you. Sometimes family, at the end of the day, will fail you, fool you, and forget you. Like, we have to find everything about who we are in a man named Jesus. Lauren, that's so good. The people, the things that we find our identities in, if we're not careful, can quickly become idols. Misplaced identity leads to idolatry. And I believe that idolatry has become one of the greatest hindrances, one of the greatest sins of the American church when pursuing racial reconciliation. The definition of idol is actually pretty simple, y'all. It is simply the worship of something or someone other than God. It is giving our affection, our allegiance, our loyalty to someone or something other than him and him alone. Hebrews 12, I love the amplified translation because it, it specifies that sin that it talks about. It says um, that we have to throw off the sin that so easily and cleverly entangles us. That's so specific. In other words, the sin that we all get twisted and caught up and kind of deceived into buying into. And as Christians, as evangelicals in America, so many of us were cleverly sold a version of Christianity that puts America first. And we bought in. We were poorly discipled into an idea that God cares about our country the flourishing and advancement of our country more than everything and anything else in any other place. But friends, this theology is a complete contradiction to the gospel that we read. It absolutely opposes the teachings of Jesus. He called us in the Great Commission to go that ye therefore and teach all nations. And that word nations actually translates to ethnos. Go ye therefore and teach all ethnic groups, not just your own. So when we gather together under the name of Jesus, the one who broke down every wall of racial hostility and made, him, made us one in him, we actually boast of a kingdom that's not of this world. We don't just boast of this country. We are now citizens of heaven. That's what we celebrate. We're now interested and invested in it being on earth as it is there. We, set, we are set on bringing all of the nations and everyone to the feet of Jesus. Our nation alone cannot be our only priority. In Revelation 7, when a great multitude are gathered around the throne of God and they utter songs of praise unto him, do you know what song they're singing? Because it's not the Star Spangled Banner. 
You know what song they're singing in glory before the Lord of hosts? It's not America the Beautiful. The song they sing with a loud voice is blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever and ever. Amen. It's not just American citizens gathered before the sea of glass in the throne room. It's every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation united in praise unto him. So this America first, America best, America only mindset is blinding us, and it's removing us, and it's hindering us from being a kingdom-minded people. It's excusing us from leaning into being reconciled to every nation and to one another. And I believe our prayer has to be, Lord, we repent for accepting a version of Christianity that puts our identity in anything other than just you. We, all of us, every single one of us, we want to turn and embrace your kingdom and your ways and fullness. And we just ask that you'd show us how. I know this conversation can be super overwhelming. Like this whole series can be uh, easy to just kind of check out or tune out to. And maybe you're sitting here today thinking that this just doesn't apply to you. You haven't committed a hate crime. You have friends who are minorities. You're a good person. All of that is great. I want all of that for you. I'm not discrediting any of that. But we all want to think that we're the exception to the rule. That we're good and that we don't have to kind of lean into the subject of racial reconciliation because it's just reserved for people who are, quote, passionate about it. And then we can take a passive seat. That it's just an elective to the gospel and to following Jesus. But this perceived innocence, another chain, is just another form of indifference. It's just another chain. Y'all, people's pain is our pain. The pattern of this world says that I don't have to be concerned because it's happening or because it's not happening to me. Dominique Gilliard so, says it so well. Jesus, the most innocent of all. Jesus, who died for our sin. Jesus had the opportunity to stay in the shalom, the peace of heaven, but love compelled him to enter in. I'm going to say that again, but love compelled him to enter in. He didn't stay in heaven. He didn't say, I'm going to pray for y'all. I really hope you figure it out because you've made a mess. He didn't hope for the best. Y'all, that is the missional model for all of us here today too. Jesus is our example, not our excuse. We can hope and pray for one another and that every would, and that every would, um, would encounter Jesus and that hearts would be transformed. That is the goal. But in the meantime, what are we doing to address and change the systems and call out and fight for injustice and the sin of racism that has corroded our families and our communities and country and just how we see other people? Yes, Jesus came to, the, or came to earth, he walked to the earth to reconcile us to the Father, but he also came to earth to reconcile us to one another. He set the standard for us to continually pursue peace with each other. Our relationships with one another, how we love, how we fight for, how we advocate for, how we see one another and seek justice for other people who were created in the same Imago Dei, the image of God as us, all of that is a reflection of our relationship to and with the Father. It's not enough just to say that this, this conversation is a heart issue, that racism is a heart issue, and because I'm good, I'm not a part of the problem that we can excuse ourselves from the narrative, y'all, we all have a role to respond in the brokenness of the world. You know, what's so wild is that this process of 
of crafting this with Aria was actually and has been the thing that's caused me to lean in to the reality that I kind of thought I was good. In many ways, I thought, I don't think that I'm really a part of the problem anymore. I've done the work. I've built the relationships. And to be honest, I've never struggled this much to try to come up with a teach. Ever. I'm going to get really vulnerable. <laughs> I have had so much anxiety over the past couple weeks about this moment. And I knew it wasn't from the Lord because anxiety never is. I've asked so many friends to just pray for me, to keep me in mind, because I really didn't want to speak from the flesh, but I've wanted to speak from, from the spirit. I wanted to be led by him. And my family does this prayer call every Tuesday night on Zoom. And last week I, I kept saying, I said, guys, I just need a word from the Lord. Like, I, I need to hear from him. I, I don't know that I felt his approval over the words I've put together. I don't know that I felt heaven on it yet, and I'm just waiting for a word. I'm just looking for a word. And the other night, I was home alone, trying to pray, trying to worship. And the Lord stopped me in my tracks. And he said, Lauren, you don't need a word. You need a broken heart. And for some reason, I've had so many walls up in this process. It's like whenever I closed my eyes and pictured Ari and I up here, this weird lie crept in, and I felt like I'm just going to be in a room full of a lot of people who don't look like me, and I have to defend and protect and explain my perspective. It was all I could envision. Like Chad a couple weeks ago said, we're not going to do the Sarah McLaughlin you know, thing. But like in my mind, I was kind of doing that. And I think it's because I have experienced so much pain and so much anger and so much frustration that over the past 10 or so years, it's never my friends outside of the four walls of the church that I have to explain my humanity to. Like when a George Floyd or a Breonna Taylor happens, it's never my friends who, who are a part of the body of Christ. It's always the people who say they know him and love him that just don't want to understand. And I think I didn't realize that I've embodied and lodged that frustration and that pain somewhere. And I just think it started to lash out a little bit. That lie kept coming in. I just, I'm hoping everybody listens and I'm hoping nobody walks out. <laughs> but in reality, I, I was approaching this as if I didn't have work to do. And the other thing the Lord said to me the other night was, Lauren you have this like weird idea that you're going to be in this random room full of people who don't look alike. That's not a random room full of people. That's your family. And then right when he said it to me, I was standing in my kitchen and I looked over at my kitchen table and I thought about Walt and Sue Scott coming to my apartment last summer and I cooked them steak and I definitely overcooked it. <laughs> but they scraped their plates and they never said a word. And I know Sue was like, this is really chewy steak. <laughs> and I thought about being at Barry Kramer's house and playing cornhole bags, whatever you Midwesterners call it. Bags. And he it's beat me bags. many times and we high-fived at the end. And I thought about Chad and Melissa Two friends that I thank the Lord for every day. 
And I thought about Trev and Amy and how you guys felt like family since I got here. And I've thought about our staff, who I adore, every single person on our staff. And I thought about all of you who've been so encouraging as we've become Forest City Church. And then I thought about Eric, my friend and our pastor. He would never, oh man, guys, snot, here we go. <laughs> oh, we're family, it's fine. Um, he would never want us to throw a cape around him, and that's not my heart to do that, but I've never, I've never ever served alongside or under a white pastor who has said, this is the hill I'm going to die on. It matters this much to me. The family of God being everything that Jesus dreamed of and prayed for matters this much to me that I will do whatever it takes. Friends, like the, the, the course of history is changing in this room. And I believe there's a great cloud of witnesses like Hebrews talks about. It's celebrating, that's cheering us on. And so I just want to remind you today, we're not a random room full of people who don't look alike. We are family. Lori, you used a word that's used a lot in church spaces and especially in this conversation of racial reconciliation, and that word is repentance. And to repent means to feel regret and to change one's mind. And, you know, God invites us into this process daily. God invites us into this process daily to make us more like him. We can admit that we don't have it all together. I'll be the first to admit that all day, all day. We can admit where we've missed the mark, but repentance is not passive. It's actually active. It's not falling into just this shame cycle of, what was me? I messed up. I'm not going to do any better. It's actually an invitation to become and to be refined, to be more like Christ. John the Baptist says this in Luke 3, 8, when he says, Prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. And he goes on to identify how the response to repentance, the response to a changed heart, to a changed mind, is an outpouring of generosity and love. Pastor Rich Velota said this so beautifully earlier this week in a devotion. To produce fruit in keeping with repentance is to have a life marked by generosity, a life marked by love. Y'all, in true repentance, it's not enough to just admit maybe we've gotten it wrong. It's not enough to acknowledge that racism is evil, that it's sinful, and then just leave it at that. But our response then must be an outpouring of generosity and love. And as the church, as the body of Christ, as Forest City Church, as followers of Jesus who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we should be all over this. This is who we are called to be. This is who we get to be, guys. So church, we must ask ourselves, are our responses marked by generosity and love? When we watch the news and see the headlines, are our reactions marked by generosity and love. When we see somebody coming down the street who doesn't look like us, is our first thought marked by generosity and love? When we want to post something on social media or respond to that text, is our response marked by generosity and love? Listen, we aren't up here pretending that we have this all together. None of us do. This is this is work, but this is this is a chance to 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 follow the invitation that Jesus has set before us to come and to repent and to be more like him. 
Hebrews 12, it points to Jesus as our example. And as we throw aside every weight and all the sin that we get caught up in, we have to look at him. His constant humility, his steady meekness. This too has to be our posture, always looking at the Father, always inviting him to search us and know us and reveal any ways that are unpleasing to him and anything we have to turn away from that we could instead show generosity and love to others. This series is not about walking away with all the answers and all the right steps to take next and to give you a a big list of books to read, which, I mean, hey, read books, that's great. But the win is a broken heart before the Lord. It's surrender. It's each of us being open and aware that his way is better and that he alone has the power to change our hearts and our minds and to move us toward a spirit of generosity and love. We just have to ask him to. In a moment, Lauren and the team are going to lead us in a song that is simply a prayer of surrender. It's an invitation for God to move in our hearts. And we just want to encourage y'all, all of us, to just sit for a minute, to ask God to reveal the parts in our hearts where we have missed it, where we've gotten it wrong. Maybe it is indifference. Maybe it is misplaced identity that leads to idolatry. Maybe it is perceived innocence or something else. Whatever it is, just sit, just receive. Ask God to reveal that. And if you feel led, then take a moment to repent and ask God then to be filled and to be empowered by his spirit of generosity and love. You've been listening to Lauren Scott and Aria Childers with part three of the series titled Subversive. Thanks for listening.